welcome to the Introduction to Clinical Research podcast. My name is Debbie. I use she, her pronouns. I work in clinical research and I have decided to explain all of that to my friend Elise. Say hello, Elise. Hello, Elise. My name is Elise. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I will never stop making that dad joke. Um, I don't work in clinical research, so I'm here to learn. Good job. If you want a full introduction of who we are, why we're here, it's at the top of episode one, so you can go check that out. It's Elise from the future again, here to tell you about how you can check out transcripts and other cool information on our website, intro to clinicalresearch.podbean.com. And thanks to Sam Winnie for the use of our intro and outro music. We are here to pull the curtain back on medical research to hopefully make everybody feel a little bit more informed. Uh... And so that you can trust the outcomes of research. There's a lot to discuss. We're going to get straight into it. And today we are talking about the accelerated approval pathway or the accelerated approval program. So I'm going to give you a little peek behind the podcast curtain, a little peek behind the scenes. Elise messaged me a question about um, something she'd seen in the news. And before I answered in detail, which is how I answer everything, as you may or may not have noticed, um, we realised it would actually make a, a pretty good podcast episode that we could talk about it here and share the information with everybody. So, Elise, do you want to tell me what you read and what questions you had, and then we'll get into it? Yes. Okay. So this was a little while ago. Um, I think in uh, April of this year, which is 2023. Um. I read an article about a drug, a treatment for ALS, the disease, um, which had been, um, which had gone through accelerated approval and was uh, going to be on the market um, soon. And I was, yeah, I was. So anytime ALS is mentioned, my curiosity is piqued because my grandfather died of ALS um, prior to my birth. So I never knew him. Um, but it's always been a specter in my life, this disease. And so whenever it is mentioned in the news or, um, you know, when the ice bucket challenge and all that happens, it always catches my attention. So I read the whole article. And with the background that I had at that point from having started doing this podcast with Debbie, I started wondering, like, well, what exactly does an accelerated program mean or an accelerated approval mean? Um, and why would we approve putting a drug on the market if there was no proof that it worked, which is what I originally kind of thought um, based on my read of the mm -hmm. article, was going mm -hmm. on. Great. So we are going to get into what the Accelerated Approval Program is and what it means in terms of what data do we have to approve that drug so that it is available on the market, right? And what the kind of next steps are so it's not the end of the road. Um, and we will be looking at this um, this particular ALS example, but there are many other examples out there as well. So we're going to start with what is the Accelerated Approval Programme. Now, um, to our international listeners, this is something that is what the FDA do. So this is USA-specific. Um, there are likely to be equivalents in your country. There is a kind of equivalent in the, in the UK. It's not as mature i think is the fda program but there are there are ways that that things like this can happen basically um 
It is a program that is designed to ensure that unmet medical needs are met in a timely manner. So the FDA first implemented this in 1992 to treat serious conditions where there isn't an alternative available. It doesn't mean that they don't have any evidence that the drug is working. The FDA will still look at the evidence that's collected. So in order for a drug to get through the accelerated approval program, it will have gone through the preclinical testing that we've talked about previously, the in vitro and in vivo testing, and it will have been in human beings. The difference between the quote-unquote normal approval pathway and the accelerated pathway is um, for the accelerated approval... They will look at early data rather than all the data. And often what this means is um, we look at what's called a surrogate endpoint rather than an actual disease outcome. Now, I know that's a lot of words. We will explain them. Um, they still look at the disease profile. They look at other available treatments. They look at risk benefit. They look at the safety of the drug. Um, in the human testing and only if they are satisfied with all of those pieces will they grant the accelerated approval. So it allows a drug to be made available to members of the public should they wish to take it um, based on early data not no data. So that's something and there is still a really robust review done by the FDA the difference, as I said, is it often allows for a drug to be approved based on a surrogate endpoint because waiting for the disease outcome um, might take too long. Yeah, <clears throat> this was actually something I remember about this. The article that I read was that the the people that they had studied this disease in so far, they had not actually seen any outcome of improvement for like life expectancy or anything, but that there was like enough other data that like it was promising enough. Right. And so this that was one of those things that flagged it. I was like, why would they approve that then if like there's no proof that this is actually helping people with mm -hmm. ALS feel better or live longer? Um, and so I that was. Yeah. Now that we're, we're talking about it again, it's coming back a little bit. I wish I had read the article again. But just like, yeah, that feeling of like, but why would you say like, even if everybody in the study mm -hmm. didn't show yep. an improved like outcome of disease of the actual disease itself? How is that enough to then justify putting this out? Because it feels predatory when you think of it that way, right? To say, like, why would you let someone, like, pay thousands of dollars to take this drug hoping it's going to help them when there's no evidence that it helps them? Um, is, I think, that, yes. like, gut instinct feeling. I don't think that's, you know, having heard and read about it more, I don't think that's where I come down anymore. But, like, that that was that gut instinct feeling. I think that's very reasonable. And I think it's very difficult when we look at a for-profit pharmaceutical system it does often feel predatory um even if there's a benefit to you for it right and in this situation where the benefit isn't completely proven it's i think it's very natural for that feeling to bubble to the surface what i what i would say is um how this works so the surrogate endpoint so it, it, in the case of als right you'll look at um a bunch of different measures when you're looking at any kind of disease so the simplest example that i can think of here is something like heart disease where the thing that you really want to stop is the serious events heart attacks strokes etc that is the outcome that you want to decrease with whatever your medicines however your medicine's working whatever it's doing you want it to decrease occurrence of those events 
that is your end point or your disease outcome that you want to measure. There is a correlation between high blood pressure and occurrence of those events. So a surrogate endpoint in that situation would be high blood pressure. The surrogate endpoint is something like a lab measurement or a physical sign that's linked to the disease, but not itself a measure of disease improvement or clinical benefit, right? So your question about they didn't have data to say that this improved the life expectancy or the, the function, for example, or what the ALS patients were experiencing. They didn't measure that. They measured something else that if the study was left to run long enough, might show an improvement in that. So the reason that it's an accelerated approval pathway when we do it with surrogates is because it gives us an early flag to make a preliminary decision about whether something is likely to work or not. And particularly, like, blood pressure is a really good indicator because there is quite a strong correlation between high blood pressure and these kind of events. It's not, like, one for one, but it's it's a well-known, quite well-evidenced correlation. So if you wanted to measure the disease outcome of heart attacks or strokes, if all of your patients are doing well, which ideally they are, you won't get any, which in and itself is a powerful measure. But you have to run your study for a number of years to show that statistically, right? Or you have to you have to wait for patients who didn't have the drug to have enough heart attacks and strokes to show that there's a difference between the patients that did have the drug. Um, and that can take, depending on how many patients you've got and, and how you're doing your statistics and a whole bunch of other boring stuff, could take maybe four years, five years, which is a long time if you are suffering from high blood pressure and at risk of uh, a serious um, event like a heart attack or a stroke. Whereas if you can look at your blood pressure and you can see that on this particular drug, blood pressure is low or blood pressure is within the normal range and steady for uh, one year, that is a pretty good indicator that that patient is less likely to have a heart attack or a stroke than they would be if their blood pressure was high. That's what a surrogate endpoint means. Now, you have a question. Well, I was, yeah. <clears throat> so I remember talking about this in an earlier episode, I think, where sometimes surrogate endpoints are used to kind of like say like, oh, look how effective when that's actually a way for um, the companies running the studies to kind of uh, fudge the numbers a little, make it look more effective maybe than it is because they're only proving that it lowers blood pressure to continue your metaphor than they are. So yeah. a, a, I suppose mm -hmm. like in a in a in a world where we're or in an example where we're not talking about blood pressure and heart disease or heart, you know, cardiac arrest or something like that. We're talking about something a little less clear correlation, maybe, um, you know, the surrogate endpoint being proven, it's like, okay, well, good job, you've proven this, but have you actually proven that that's going to have the outcome you want on the disease or on the whatever? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great question. So just because, as you said, the surrogate is a is a good measure of, okay, you've lowered your blood pressure, cool, that doesn't mean it's a good indicator for every part of the disease process, right? So the accelerated approval pathway may allow a drug to be made available based off that surrogate, but it's not um, enough to get the drug its full approval. And if accelerated approval is granted, allowing the product to be on the market, the drug company is still required to demonstrate the clinical benefit in order to get its traditional approval. If the company fails to get that evidence that it, or it actually does lower the incidence or reduce the severity of cardiac events, then the drug can be removed from the market. 
that happens, okay? So this pathway is especially useful when the drug is meant to treat a disease whose course or progression is long and you need a long amount of time to measure its effect. So like heart attacks and strokes, you can have high blood pressure for years before you have an event. You may not even know you have high blood pressure and then you have a heart attack and you go, oh, goodness. Um, so for a, for a case like ALS, this is a, a situation where the course of the disease is long. And so getting early data may be really valuable in improving the quality of life for some people. But the drug company is still required to demonstrate that clinical benefit and to report those full results to keep that drug on the market and to get that traditional approval. So you can look on the FDA website for approved drugs, which I did whilst researching this episode because I'm a big nerd. And I learnt, for example, that cancer is quite common as a as a um, an indication for treatment through this accelerated approval pathway. There are 96 drugs currently, when I looked at this, that were approved through the accelerated pathway. And they've demonstrated the proven clinical benefit. So what that means is they got their initial approval through the accelerated pathway. And then after an amount of time, and that would depend on the disease progression and, and study design and such and such, they did prove their clinical benefit and they went on to get their traditional approval. Big thumbs up. 96. In the same time period, there were 24 drugs that got accelerated approval and then were withdrawn from the market because they didn't get that proven clinical benefit. So I think when you look at when you look at that, it's about a fifth of these accelerated approval drugs that end up being pulled. Now, is that ideal? No, because you will have patients that are taking a drug that doesn't work and that sucks. But you also have four fifths of patients getting early access to drugs that do work. And especially my understanding is like this... This is typically done for diseases, for things that don't have a lot of other options, right? Exactly. Like it's it's way less likely that we're going to see a blood pressure lowering medication get a pre-approval like this or an early approval because yeah. there's so many things that can treat mm -hmm. high blood pressure versus something like ALS or cancer where we're constantly looking for anything that could uh, work for different people or work at all in the case of ALS. Exactly, exactly. Great point. Thank you um, for remembering that. So absolutely, this pathway is going to be used where there's an unmet medical need. So the patient has maybe no other treatment option or maybe one other or, you know, limited treatment options. And that sucks in and of itself. But it does mean that um, maybe, maybe something's better than nothing. And four fifths is odds that I would take. If I've got nothing, I'll take a four fifth success rate. And I think it's important to highlight that in these cases, it gives the patient the opportunity to access drugs when some of the clinical studies for some of these drugs that I looked at weren't due to report until 2038. Wow. That is 15 years from now. Right. So if this drug could actually, right, if we're thinking about the ALS example, mm -hmm. if it weren't set to report until then, which we don't, I don't know if that's one of the ones that's that far out or not, but 2038 is a long time. And like everyone who's currently living with ALS, the life expectancy is lower than yeah. how, than like getting to 2038. So like anyone who could take this drug and possibly live to see the data come in in 2038 is better than right not taking the drug in this in the sense of like that risk benefit analysis for many people i think would come out to i would rather take the risk of taking this drug and having no effect for the possible benefit of making it to see whether or not this drug has an effect 
Exactly, exactly. And that risk benefit will have been reviewed by the FDA to look at the side effects of the drug versus the potential benefit. Right. So if the potential benefit for a patient with ALS is is what we hope it will be in terms of the um, at least a slowing of a rate of decline. um, Right. That would be great. But if the side effects are, oh, I don't know, your kneecaps fall off. Well, maybe that's not worth it, you know, or your kidneys shut down. Hmm, I'm going to say a hard no. So that risk benefit analysis will be done by the FDA. And they're really, really, I think they're very diligent in terms of looking at what are the kind of side effects that are acceptable for this kind of drug. And it it all depends on the indication, right? Depends on what you're trying to treat. You've said it before with with oncology um, cancer treatments, right? Like what you'll what you'll tolerate from a chemotherapy, you would not tolerate from an aspirin. But that's exactly the point of a risk benefit analysis. All right. So um, let's get into this example um, that this drug has been approved through the accelerated approval pathway, despite not showing like the clinical improvement that you would want to see, Elise, um, in this in this case. So for this example, uh, Tofersen has been approved to treat um, a rare and aggressive form of the disease known as ALS. Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, was the um, target of the ice bucket challenge a few years ago, which, just as an aside, um, was a really great um, fundraising initiative, raised a ton of money and also got a whole bunch of celebrities in white shirts wet. What's not to like? <laughs> What's not to like? Well, it's so funny, uh, just as an aside about that. It, when I was in college when the, when the ice bucket challenge was, was going on. You're, you were almost the same age. <laughs> Um, and, um, I just remember like, I didn't, I didn't like it. I, it felt so weird to me because all my life, and this is, I know we're just like, we're in personal, like anecdote land now. Um, but I was like all my life, like I, I, like I said, the specter of this disease hanging over me and like, I was a kid. So I learned a fair amount about ALS because it scared me because I was like, what if my mom gets it? What if I get it? Right. Is it genetic? And all these questions that just knowing that my grandfather died of this horrible disease that like ruined his life. Right. Um, and so then in college, like my whole life, no one's ever known anything about ALS. People are like, what is that? And like, maybe if you say like, oh, Lou Gehrig's disease, they're like, oh, I think I've heard of that. Right. And then suddenly everyone's like playing this game where they're dumping water on themselves and like, you know, making it fun and interesting. Like it really sat badly with me. Um, and I and I talked to my brother about it and like he had the opposite reaction. He was just he was happy that people were paying attention to it and like um, he didn't really care whether or not they knew more about it so long as like money was getting pumped into it. And I, I agree with that long term. Right. Like even at the time, I remember saying, like, I'm glad we're funding more research about this because so little is known. Um, but it's still just like I just remember like talking to my friends about it and just being like, yeah, I'm not going to post about it. I'm not going to mm-hmm. do it. Like, I don't know. Like it like I. Yeah, it just icked me. And I and like totally understand like a hundred percent how different, like even between me and my brother, like mm-hmm. completely different reactions to that, which is fine. But like it's I think it's just um a really interesting, you know, as someone who studies behavioral health, mental health, um, psychology, uh, studies and works in these mm-hmm. areas. Um, I think that that was just like a fascinating case of like how something like that um yeah, can can be so differently differently received yeah absolutely and both i think absolutely valid reactions totally i think i didn't know 
um, as much about ALS before um, I saw the ALS challenge as I did after because I saw it and I was like, what? What is this? And I went and found out about it and yeah. a ton of money was raised. So, um, yeah, it's one of those kind of does the end justify the means? But, yes. yeah, is it... That like the memification of some things, it can be it can be icky. Yeah. But I think that there, there was so much money raised as a result of it. Yes. That money will do good, even if how it was raised will will likely feel uncomfortable for many people. For for some, right? And like, and I certainly don't think that like my discomfort with it was typical. I know that there were lots of people I talked to who had family members with ALS or things or people with ALS who made statements about how much they liked it. Right. I don't think that Mm. my reaction was typical. And I also don't think that the potential of someone having that kind of like ick feeling is like a reason to not create campaigns and viral Mm -hmm. marketing. Like like Mm -hmm. I really you know, I think that the value of these things ultimately do outweigh. um, Yeah. So I don't know, just just maybe that one goes in the philosophy ravine, too, is just kind of like how how does like some someone's individual reaction with like a personal connection to something um, really impact or weigh in on the moral their experience. of um, Yeah. Mm-hmm, on like exactly. the moralness of something like the ice bucket challenge. Anyway, we've gotten deep into that. Um, into the philosophy ravine with you, Elise. Go yes. visit Andy. <laughs> we'll toss it over there and uh, maybe someday we'll return mm-hmm. to that one. But in the meantime, um, you were telling us a little bit about ALS yep. and what it so, is. Um, ALS is the most common type of motor neuron disease. So motor neuron disease, MND itself, is rare. ALS is a type of that and is the most common of that rare group of diseases that affects your motor neurons. So those are the nerve cells in your brain and spinal cord that control voluntary muscle movement. So your ability to move yourself around. It is progressive and fatal. Um, and it causes the nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord to break over time. Okay. There are different types or strands of ALS. And the one that is specifically treated by this drug, uh, Tefersen, SOD1 ALS, is um, the specific strand that this drug t- treats, um, which is caused by specific mutations in the SOD1 protein. That's why it's called SOD1 ALS. The mutations cause that protein to build up to toxic levels. But just because there's toxic levels of that protein, there hasn't yet been adequate evidence to kind of link the two together to say this buildup of SOD1 is what causes disease progression. But uh, it's one of those where there is a buildup in people who have this um, mutation. There is a buildup in people who have this set of symptoms. And that is a common variable. Therefore, it is most likely. So Elise, am I right? Your grandfather had ALS. So can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like for your family? Yeah. So um, I wasn't alive. Um, My grandfather died before I was born, Um, but he was diagnosed when my mom was like 14 or so. Um, And at the time, the prognosis was like two years, um, and he actually lived seven, which was, mm. which my mother has always described or or narrated as a bad thing, um, because the the disease is is very cruel, um, and so the the prolonged suffering um, for him, but also the way that because he he was not necessarily a, a very good person, and so there was also a prolonged suffering for the family that came from that. 
that, that wasn't just because he was in pain. It was also because of the way he treated people. But that's kind of outside the scope. The thing that kind of stands out to me about what we're talking about is the way that ALS, um, you know, it's a it, it makes your muscles stop working and things like that. It's very uh, like when you hear it without having these family stories about someone in your life who um, had it sounds very like, oh, yes, okay, your muscles stop working. But for me, those things are attached to stories about like, my mom telling us about how my grandfather stopped smoking because he couldn't hold a cigarette anymore. Um, And it was, uh, it was, you know, his hand couldn't grip Mm -hmm. the cigarette, or it shook Mm -hmm. too much to hold it to his lips. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I remember also like stories about having to help him. There was a inclement weather situation when my mom was a, a teenager and having to, she was the only one home and having to like help him move to shelter because he couldn't move and his wheelchair wasn't around. I don't remember all the details, but like, you know, he couldn't move himself to shelter. And my mom was, you know, 16 or whatever um, and had to kind of like find a way to to get herself and him to shelter um, in the middle of all of this. And and so it's yeah, it's fascinating. And I know, you know, it's it's really kind of sad to talk about. But a lot of times um, the thing that makes or the, the thing that kills people with ALS is actually starvation uh, because their muscles stop functioning enough to swallow food, um, even if you can put food directly in their stomachs or things like this. Um, it's they're, you know, the, the muscles that control your digestive tract and things like that can't move the food forward. And so you can't process it. So you aren't getting nutrition through the food that you're eating or, or eating is a strong word for having like food injected into yeah. you, but, um, or put mm. into you, but, um, you know, you can't digest mm-hmm. anymore because your muscles just don't respond to the, the, the stimuli, the stimuli that yeah. tell you, Hey, it's time to it's time to digest Move things along yes. your colon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty nasty, cruel thing to have someone's muscle stuff. And, and I think the reason I think this is kind of important to say is like, you know, when we're talking about these, this drug being available for people experiencing this, right. How much quality of life can be eked out with even just, the slowing of this is, you know, pretty incredible to imagine when you think about those types of consequences um, and the impact on the family, right? Um, how much it impacted my mom and her family. Um, right. So anyway. No, thank you for sharing that. I think it takes it takes a disease from the abstract into the real because we can imagine, um, you know, we, we get a little glimpse in through the window of what it, what it could be like to live with a disease like ALS or to have a family member living with it. Um, rather than just, oh, it's a degenerative disease where your motor neurons break down. You, you've um, shared some some pretty pretty sad stories that help put that into a real context of a real person's experience. Thank you. Yeah. So in this case, the surrogate endpoint. So we didn't measure um, improvement or a slow in the rate of decline for these patients. Uh, we measured this surrogate endpoint, which was a protein called neurofilament light. What a great name for a protein. Um, And that protein is associated with the severity of the disease. So it's kind of itself 
a tool to see how much neurodegeneration is occurring, how much damage to these motor neurons is happening. So even before someone shows clinical signs and symptoms, this neurodegeneration can be happening. The buildup of neurofilament light can be going on. And the amount of neurofilament light that a patient has is directly correlated with survival. So how long they live. That is why it's a it's a useful surrogate endpoint in this situation. It's something that you can measure at baseline and you can measure after X months or years and you can see how much there is. And we know from previous research that the amount of this thing is directly correlated with how long a person lives. Okay. I, I feel a little lost right now and I'm not sure if this is a more medical question than a than a clinical research question, but I'm going to ask it. And if it's if it's too far afield, just let me know. The The idea of a protein being a tool is still like, are we measuring? Because to me, like the, the tool is measuring the amount of protein, not the protein itself. Right. Like, is that is that what we're doing? Like when we say exactly. like the protein is a tool, it's a it's a exactly. measuring the amount of the protein indicates As an indicator. Yes. Of, OK. OK. So the protein is called neurofilament light. Correct. The more of it there is, the more the, the it is correlated with um, worse more symptoms severe. and yes, more, severe more severe disease disease. Right. So then if we could decrease the amount or slow the buildup of neurofilament light, mm-hmm. we would most likely see is the is the logic. I'm just. Hopefully this is following. <laughs> we would most likely see a, a slowdown in the progression of how severe the disease gets. Like it would get yes. severe slower because yes. we're slowing down the the amount the build of, up of the thing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Got it. I just I was like I was listening and I was like I think I get this, but I'm not sure if I get it. So I just no. wanted to to work through it with you and like make sure I'm following. Always good to check. No. Um. Fantastic. Absolutely. So the it's a tool in that we use it, um, the amount of it as a measure, right? So you, whenever you have a, a blood test done, right, um, each of those results, whether it's the amount of red blood cells or white blood cells, they are tools in that they are indicators for your body functions being normal or not normal, mm-hmm. right? So the level of neurofilament light that you have is an indicator of if it's if you've got a, t- a ton of it and it's building up that is abnormal that is going to lead to you having um, a more severe ALS disease progression than if you have like a medium amount of, of neurofilament light this is a bit of a messy metaphor but I think that it, in terms of it being a tool it's it's an indicator of how severe or not the disease is so if there's less of it it is likely that the disease will be less severe i.e the progression slowed because it is this degenerative disease that over time causes the loss of um, voluntary muscle movement. Right. Which is terrible. If you can slow that progression down so the patient can retain more function for longer, that's better. Yeah. And particularly where we're talking about surrogate endpoints in this case, we didn't measure how well a patient retained their muscular control or function we measured the amount of neurofilament light which is often indicative of their muscular function but it's not the same as and that's why it's called a surrogate endpoint got it thank you for asking me to clarify though because it is it is tricky and there's a lot of complex things in this and so i I don't i don't want you to be lost and ideally i don't want anyone listening to be lost either okay so 
In the results reported that were submitted to the FDA in order to obtain this accelerated approval, the SOD1 levels decrease. Is SOD1 the same thing as neurofilament light? No. Mm -mm. Okay. Two different things. So SOD1 is the, the protein that has mutations in it, and that's this particular strand of ALS that this particular drug okay. is treating, is SOD1. So they measured SOD1 and neurofilament. What we don't know is the link between how much SOD1 you have and disease progression. So we don't know that showing a decrease in SOD1 is likely to lead to an improvement in ALS, but we do know that a decrease in, in neurofilament is directly correlated <laughs> with survival okay so they measured both and it is likely that sod1 is linked to disease survival but the research hasn't shown it adequately yet and there's a million different reasons why that could be poorly designed protocols a bunch of other variables going on etc okay et so th then if i'm following the measuring of sod1 levels like that's what the that's what tofersin the drug can control is sod1 levels no it does both so in the results reported the patients saw sod1 levels decrease between 20 and 38 percent when they were taking the active drug tofersin versus placebo there was also a decrease of neurofilament of an average of 55 percent for patients on tofersin compared to interestingly a 12 percent increase for patients on placebo okay over the same period. So it decreased both SOD1 and neurofilament. SOD1 is probably a surrogate measure, not proven. Neurofilament, we know, is a surrogate measure because it's proven it's directly correlated with survival. We know that from previous research that's accepted. Yes. So in this study, the drug showed a decrease in SOD1 and a decrease in neurofilament. And for patients on placebo, their neurofilament increased. Gotcha. However, what this study didn't measure, and this is the important thing of why it's an accelerated approval, not a regular approval, is that it didn't measure any impact on disease progression. So any slowing of the rate of decline or any anything like that. And that is likely because the study was short, only 28 weeks. The FDA say that it is reasonable to expect that if a drug reduces the levels of neurofilament, it will have a clinical impact on ALS and a longer duration study will hopefully show that there is one that is due to finish in 2024. So next year, 2024, we'll know after that study reports whether a traditional approval will be granted or if the product's going to be withdrawn. Okay, that's that's really interesting. So the drug was being studied in this particular rare form of ALS, SOD1 ALS. And it seems to have an impact on neurofilament. Is Do you know, and this, again, may be too far afield, do you know if neurofilament is something that is across the board in all ALS patients, regardless of whether it's SOD1 ALS or a different form of it that impacts them? Like, could any ALS patient, whether or not they have SOD1 ALS or a different form of it, now take Tofersen uh, in the hopes of seeing this, or is it still only for people with the SOD1 variant? So the approval is based on the evidence of this study that is only for the SOD1 variant. Gotcha. Now, that doesn't mean that down the track, the drug company can't go and test it in any other variant and prove that it works the same way. But this accelerated approval is only for this particular subset. And this is something that happens... This is something that happens quite frequently in research in that you'll get a drug approved for 
a particular thing. It happens quite often in oncology. So you'll get a drug approved for, let's say, ovarian cancer. And then because many diseases are related, particularly if it's a family of disease like motor neuron diseases, it'll treat this and it will also treat that and that thing over there. So often drugs that are used to treat asthma may also be used to support treatment in COPD patients or cystic fibrosis patients because lung function, no matter what's causing your decline in lung function, whether it's asthma, COPD or or cystic fibrosis, medicine that supports your lung function for any of those may well support the patient adequately. But you may get your drug approved in one indication or one disease and then expand the label, but you have to provide the evidence for it. Now, there is a thing called off-label prescribing where doctors can do that logic kind of in advance in terms of they'll look at something and go, well, that's approved for ovarian cancer. This breast cancer is is similar to that. So this patient is resistant to all of the other chemos that I've tried. I'm going to throw this thing at them. And that's often done when you have no further options. So it off-label prescribing happens when you go, well, I got nothing, so I'm going to throw this at it and see what happens. Okay, because that was my next question. I remember when we were talking about the different phases or the you know this uh, of clinical research, and you said like once it's approved, like in phase four, mm-hmm. um, once it's approved, like there's so much more data because it's it's going to be out in the world, just being used without the mm-hmm. perfect clinical settings, right? Um, and one of the ways I think we said that that can happen is a doctor prescribing it in like a way that it wasn't necessarily perfectly like studied. So that was going to be a question was for this particular drug that we're talking about. Right. Um, if the FDA says like, yes, you can prescribe this to SOD1 ALS patients and somebody who has ALS, but not SOD1 ALS and their doctor says, look, this isn't technically for people with your form of ALS, but I think it'll help. They could prescribe it. That would not get them like revoked their medical license or something. I would have to look at what the what the rules are in the US. Um, but yeah, off-label prescribing happens all the time. So it would depend if there are particular terms and conditions with this accelerated approval that I don't know about, or it would depend on what the, the off-label prescribing rules are, because I imagine knowing America, it probably varies state to state. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is something that happens semi-frequently in the world. And particularly, yeah, once drugs are approved through the normal approval pathway and on the market, yeah, it happens. Okay. In terms of accelerated approval, I'm, I'm sure it could happen, but I don't know. Yeah. I think because it's one of those where often, often the group of people for which an accelerated approval pathway drug is approved is a very narrow group, like SOD1 ALS. Um, it's for these people... That doesn't mean that off-label prescribing isn't happening, but they're the target for it. And that's who it's that's who it's aimed at. That's who they have the evidence to show that, okay, it, it does reduce the amount of neurofilament, which probably in a longer duration study will show it slows the rate of decline, which doesn't mean that it cures ALS. Right. It is not that kind of treatment. But it the the goal of this treatment is to slow that rate of decline to give the patient more muscular control for longer and better quality of life. Got it. There are other treatments that I know of that have been approved recently through this accelerated approval pathway. There was one uh, June of 2023 called um, Elevidis that was approved for the treatment of muscular dystrophy. And that is a gene therapy. So that alters the patient's genes to remove the problem. So that is, if it works... Modern medicine is is wild. Like, the fact that we can, like... 
isn't it? Though? Give someone a drug that alters their genes to remove a disease. Like it's kind of mind blowing. It's cool, isn't it? Yeah, gene therapy is awesome. Um, and it's it's the difficulty with it is is it's 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 hard to do because of how our bodies are set up. There are so many cells, right? And if you have something, um, let's say like eczema, right, that affects your skin which is a, the biggest organ of your body. It covers all of you. Um, if you want to treat that, you have to hit all of the cells. And then we know how fast our skin sheds. So how do you, how do you get the treatment in deep enough to the base layers of your skin to treat that rather than just treating the surface level that's then shed? Right. And this is the kind of stuff that, that modern medicine is, is grappling with at the moment. And so this, um, what's interesting about Elevidus is, so muscular dystrophy is um, a serious condition that causes progressive muscle weakness. So kind of similar to ALS, but different in that it's muscle weakness caused by muscle uh, proteins, the lack of a functioning dystrophin protein, rather than degeneration in motor neurons. The... Outcome is similar in terms of muscular control or weakness, but the root cause is different. One is your nerve cells breaking down so the messages aren't getting through and the muscular dystrophy is caused by your proteins that form your muscles not working properly. At present, the average life expectancy for people with this particular form of muscular dystrophy, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, is 27 years. So this treatment is designed for young kids to hopefully give them stronger muscles for longer. And they measured the amount of microdystrophin. Okay, so the gene therapy, this particular gene therapy of this particular drug, works by giving the patient a functioning version of this microdystrophin, which is a miniature version of the, the the protein that's broken for them. Okay, so they measured the amount of this microdystrophin in the patients. That's their surrogate endpoint if you've got functioning dystrophin or microdystrophin your muscles will work as expected if you haven't one one potential outcome of that is this duchenne muscular dystrophy so similarly to uh you have less neurofilament you slow the rate of disease you have more dystrophin you slow the rate of muscle or muscle weakness but the actual statistically powered evidence of clinical outcome would be um, there's a measurement scale that's used to af- assess decline in patients with muscular dystrophy. So measuring the patients for one year or two years on that scale and seeing what their rate of decline is versus placebo patients and saying they're not declining, they're doing great, or the rate of decline is slower is exactly what they're looking for, but that takes time. And that's why it's a prime example to go through the accelerated approval pathway. Makes sense. It makes it just... Mm. calls to mind for me again and i know this is like a necessary part of this but like how heartbreaking it would be to be part of the placebo group if your life Mm. expectancy is 27 years and like the outcome is like oh these kids (laughs) right this group of kids gets to live to be 40 and this group of kids gets to live to be 27 um they would i i know i it's not something we can not do we have to have something to compare against um mm-hmm. and especially in these situations where there is nothing yeah. there is nothing the the fda are actually really good at pushing for if there is an existing product you compare your drug to the existing product you do not compare it mm. to placebo because of exactly that reason of you are taking patients who maybe need something and you're taking them off that something and giving them a placebo oh, yeah no that sucks but when there's nothing even if it's like a 50 50 chance or a 75 25 chance yeah most of us will take that 
and go, yeah, okay. Uh, and knowing that um, that it's necessary for the research to be proven. And often, not always, uh, if you're in the placebo group, if the drug is proven, sometimes drug companies offer you the active product as a kind of thank you. That's good, yeah. So like we saw it a lot in the COVID vaccines. Um, so the patients who got the, the placebo in the vaccine studies often were offered the active product once once the study was reported, the results known and and. It's called unblinding when you find out which drug which patients got. The placebo patients found out they were on placebo and they were offered, hey, do you want to have the active ones? Right. Because you didn't get it. So that is always an option. It's not always something that drug companies do, but I think it's a potential solution to that kind of prickle. All right. Any more questions on the accelerated approval pathway? Because it's something that I think we're seeing in the news a little bit more now. I don't know whether it's since COVID or maybe it's just us doing this podcast, but like... I am aware so much more of of clinical research results being reported in the news. And, and you know, like you obviously came to me and said, hey, what does this mean? Because this doesn't make sense. How have they approved a drug with no evidence? It's not that they haven't got any evidence. It's they've got a particular kind of evidence that isn't the normal evidence. And the reason for that is to get this drug available to patients who may need it because they've no other option in a more timely manner while we're waiting for the study to report. So the the Duchenne muscular dystrophy, the Elevidus study reports uh, end of next year, end of this year, early next year, and the ALS to Fersen study reports next year. So we're going to know in the next couple of years whether either of these drugs will get their... Um, normal approval sounds so dismissive, but mm-hmm. they'll get their routine approval, the, the the one that most most drugs go through, because not every drug qualifies for the accelerated approval pathway. Um and just because if you don't get an accelerated approval, that doesn't mean you can't get a regular approval. It just means that the FDA don't think the benefit of making this drug available outweighs the risk. Yeah, that all makes sense. I'm glad we talked about this. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for asking the question. So any further questions, Elise? No, thanks, Debbie. You are welcome. Um We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast. If you have any questions or would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at clinical.research.intro at gmail.com. Please do subscribe so you get the next episode automatically. And of course, please rate and review. You can also check out the Clinical Research 101 Instagram page at clinical.research.intro. There's a post on there about a Levidus, for example, that you might want to check out. Elise would say smash that like and subscribe button, but I will not say that. Mm -mm. If you wish to, don't forget, you can submit compliments um, using the email address to Debbie and I will read them and make her react to them uh, just as an incentive to watch her listen, I suppose, for those of you uh, listening. Listen to her squirm as we tell her how smart and brilliant Mm. and wonderful and good at explaining these things. Oh, you should see. You should see her face. It's perfect. I hate this. Thank you so much, everybody. (laughs) So that's a goodbye from me. Compliment free, Debbie. Say goodbye, Elise. Goodbye, Elise. (laughs) 